We're at the end, Mark chapter 16. It's a pretty short gospel. And it's a very abrupt passage, actually. Um, last week, was a much lengthier passage, Mark spends a lot of time detailing Jesus' movement from being betrayed uh, to dying and being buried. And here, what seems, uh, if you're a Christian, to be the quintessential moment in history, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his rising from the dead, gets eight verses. It's very interesting. If you like nice, pretty endings to your stories, ones that provide resolution, you might be a little uncomfortable with this one. And I think Mark intends it that way. So I'll read our text for us. I'm actually going to uh, read the beginning and the end. I'll start with Mark 1.1 and then read the end of our text. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now the end. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do, you, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this semester to study this book, to learn about you and what you're about and why you died. Lord, we pray here at the end of our time in Mark, you would tie these things together, that you would press this message of who you are and what you've done into our hearts, that we might know you and follow you. pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. When I was in high school, I was a runner, and I was a pretty good one. And I distinctly remember the first couple races I won where the competition weren't complete scrubs. At a high school level, sometimes you run like small meets with teams that barely failed runners. And you just sort of look at the field and you're like, ah, I can give 80% of the maximum effort here and be fine. But on this particular day, it was a small meet, but it was really good competition. And I won both my races. And I won them in personal best times. And I actually sort of won them dramatically. I actually can still remember the races. Came from behind, outleaned the guys at the end. It was great. The bad thing was I couldn't enjoy my victory. It's sort of my first significant victory. I'm, a, I'm really competitive by nature. If you get to know me, you'll know that. You'll say, I don't see that. You don't come across. That's because I refuse to play with you because I'm competitive. I'm afraid you might beat me. I'm afraid I might gloat in my winning over you. So I try to shield you from my competitive nature sometimes. I couldn't uh, enjoy my victory that day. None of the goodness of it. None of the satisfaction for all the work I'd put into it. Because I was deeply miserable. Sunk deep down in a funk. Because I'd been dumped by my first girlfriend. Yeah, no, that's right. By the way, it was only girls doing that. The guys are actually laughing at me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now here comes the hook. We're often like this with the victory of Jesus. 
We're often like this as regards Jesus' victory. We often can't enjoy it because we're too sunk deep down in our own funk. Mark starts his book, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he ends in this chapter 16, which is a little strange, but still with a note of resounding victory and triumph. Jesus has risen from the dead. It's remarkable news. So why do we, if we're Christians, often fail to live in light of it? If this is true, it's the best news mankind's ever received, how do we so easily forget it? How do we so easily forget the goodness of this good news? It's very easy for us to live in the immediacy of our circumstances. We're humans. We do that naturally. It's very easy for us to live in our own stories, our own narratives. We craft them together really well. And we forget grander, bigger stories like this one. And so we often fail. We fail to find Jesus' victory comforting. Uh, We don't derive as much joy or peace or purpose as we should from it. I'm talking just about us that are Christians. Those that are non-Christians, you might be saying, well, I'm not supposed to believe those things. You're right, not yet. But part of the reason some of you non-Christians may have trouble with this is because you look at Christians that supposedly believe this thing happened, and frankly, they're not any more purposeful or joyful or have more perspective about the world than you most of the time. And I understand that. And and lastly, uh, if this is the greatest news ever, the good news, why are we so slow to share it? And most of us, when we get good news, we can't help but share it. Uh, you know, she said yes. Oh, good for you. I got the internship. Now, uh, we want to share our good news. If this is the best news ever, why are we so slow to share it? We need to recover for Christians. And if you're non-Christians, I want to ask you to strive to discover or understand at least the goodness of the good news of Jesus. And it starts at the end of the story here with Jesus' victory over death. That Jesus' victory over death is the heart of God's good news. The heart of God's good news message to the world. God is sending a message of good news to the world. And the heart of that story is Jesus rising from the dead. So tonight we're going to talk about what is Jesus' victory, what's the story, and what is our part in that story. Okay? It's okay, it was short. You memorized it by now, right? So uh, what is Jesus' victory? And the one word answer is it's his resurrection from the dead, although that word may not help some of you. Uh, And so I'll just sort of review the story. Uh, What we have when we start the chapter is an apparent defeat. Jesus came at the beginning of the story, claiming to be the Son of God. He was coming uh, as the initiator, the head of a kingdom movement. He was coming to restore all things. He was basically calling himself, indirectly, a king. A king who's coming back to claim what's rightfully his, to restore his rule, to set things right. However, by the end of the story, his closest followers have abandoned him. And he is crucified as a criminal on a cross. And no such king would be followed. Not by Jews, because he would be a weak king. Not by Greeks, because he would be a foolish king. It's impossible that anyone would follow the kind of crucified king or messiah that Jesus is. 
if his death is the last word. It seems like complete apparent defeat. We have uh, well-intentioned, loyal women visiting his grave. They're going to anoint his body after the fact, which was a, what they did. They seem to have no anticipation that Jesus was going to be alive. Even though he had said three times, I'm going to die just like this and I will rise again. It seems like an apparent defeat. But what we have instead in Jesus' resurrection is death itself being defeated. In verses 4 and 5, they look up and they see that the stone is rolled away. The stone had been placed over the mouth of the tomb. And um, that's not the only shocking thing. Looking up, they saw the stone had been moved away and entering the tomb. This is where it freaks me out. These people must have been braver than us. Uh, you, you have to get down on your knees and crawl into this dark place. So they, they go inside the tomb. You go. No, 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 no. You go. No, you go. Um, and, they, and they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed, as they had every right to be. They, they find uh, some startling uh, evidence here. And uh, the young man says to them, uh, don't be alarmed. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you say so. Um, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. There's a shocking explanation for the rolled away stone in the, in the missing body. It's that Jesus has risen. And if this is true, uh, right now all we have is an empty tomb. All kinds of things could have happened to Jesus' body. Uh, this is the most significant event in human history. I would say even if you're a, a deep skeptic or cynic, if we sat down and talked about that, this we could have come to agreement about this. Um, and what he, this young man, this angel, seems to be claiming is very important for us. That the word risen or resurrected is not something that's ever happened before. Uh, it's not resuscitation. Jesus wasn't sort of dead and then revived in the tomb, fought himself out of his grave clothes, pushed open the stone, and then, hardest thing of all, convinced his followers he had risen from the dead. Can you imagine that? Bloody, beaten, half dead. I'm back from the dead, raised again. Uh, we don't think so. Uh, it's not that Jesus discovered the fountain of youth. He really did die. It's not merely restoration. Jesus had raised people from the dead, but they just sort of came back as them normal, their normal selves. He did this with a young lady. He did this with Lazarus. Both those folks died. Jesus is altogether different. Jesus is raised bodily alive again after being bodily dead. And the text tells us he's going ahead to Nazareth to appear to his disciples. The disciples see him. Other people see him. Eventually 120 witnesses see him. And what they all know is that Jesus is different. He's not a ghost, purely spiritual. He eats food. He shakes hands. He gives hugs. But he's not just some other average Joe Schmo in a body either. Jesus is resurrected. He is different. And uh, this is significant. Maybe I'll get back to it later in the message, but probably not. Here's the other thing, though. It means that Jesus has the power over death. That Jesus personally has gone through death and come out the other side and has the power to undo death in the world for all of us. And I, choose, I assume you choose not to dwell on this. For most of us, we simply assume death is the last word. The tally of human history is something like death, five billion, humanity, zero. Maybe one, Jesus rose from the dead. 
have a graveyard behind my side of my house. Never seen any people walking around in there that shouldn't be alive. I mean, they, they're all dead and they stay dead. Death seems to be the last word for every single one of us. But this is true. That Jesus went through death and came out the other side. Then Jesus is the last word and not death. Some of you might be thinking, this is scientifically impossible. You can't repeat this. Historical facts don't have to be repeated. Strange things happen. Uh, there were witnesses, not only these women, but numerous other witnesses who saw this. And by the way, this is not some fantasy land. In fantasy land, they'd say, oh, he rose from the dead. Great. We were expecting that. No, they're freaked out of their minds. This is exactly the way they were supposed to respond. This is what's natural when you live in a world of natural laws. People aren't supposed to rise from the dead. They responded like they should have. With fear. And frankly, the best way to explain, unless this is the most elaborate and intelligent hoax ever, which I don't think any real skeptic would give us the credit for, Christianity is the best hoax ever. This is the best explanation that you're here tonight, and the church exists 2,000 years later. The best explanation. This really happened. That Jesus really rose from the dead. That people have been loyal to him for 2,000 years, and have followed him at cost, at the cost of their own lives sometimes. So, if this is true, it also means Jesus is who he says he is. He's the son of God. He's the son of man who comes on a mission to make everything right. And that's important because uh, it's it's not there. It's not there. Stop looking there. Uh, The text tells us, the young man tells us, the angel tells us, he's not here, he's risen. Go, go, he's going before you to Nazareth. It's, It's interesting, Jesus is risen from the dead, and what does he do? He immediately goes to work. He's accomplished part of his work, but not all of it. See, Mark says this is the beginning of the good news. The good news continues. Jesus is still at work, and he's continuing his work. And here's where we have to ask, what's the story? What's driving all this? And the story is one of restoration. I'm going to talk about it two ways really quickly. One, it's the big story. There's one big story. This is the one big story of the whole Bible. God created the world good. The humanity pretty quickly ruined it. And instead of scrapping the whole thing and starting over, God said, I pledge to fix this. In fact, there will be a man that comes from the seed of the woman who at personal cost to himself will begin to set things right. And the whole Old Testament and New Testament tells the development of that story that God is seeking to restore a people to himself and this broken world that's been affected um, really deeply, systematically by sin, suffering, evil, and death. And that God intends to reverse that and to restore it and to bring in its place peace, healing, justice, mercy, and joy. That's the story. It begins in Genesis 3. It ends in Revelation. It moves from a garden to a city. God is planning on setting things right through his man. And Jesus claims to be that man. So that's the big story. The story of Jesus at the cost of himself, setting apart, setting about the task of restoring everything. And when Jesus came and began his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is here. And then he began doing things like healing broken people, uh, sick people, forgiving people's sins, uh, tackling sin, suffering, and death, and reversing it as a foretaste of what this is supposed to be like, what the whole story is supposed to be. And Jesus 
in his life and his death, his resurrection, he has dealt the final decisive blow. Not the final blow, but certainly the decisive blow to sin and death. There's still work to be done. He's doing it now. And, and we also see here, as he goes off to begin this work of restoration, uh, that it's very personal as well. It's not only this gl- big, global, uh, macro-level work of restoration, it's also intensely personal micro. It's about you. In verse 7, we read, um, the, the angel directs the women there, the witnesses, Go, tell his disciples and Peter he is going before you to Galilee. It's sort of shocking, actually. Well, it's not shocking if you know Jesus. But if you're reading the text for new with new eyes, it should be shocking. These were the men that Jesus chose and asked to follow him way back in chapter 1. They've been with him from the beginning. In Mark, they struggled to understand. And in Jesus' hour of greatest need, when he's about to face death, betrayal, every single one of them, every single one abandons him. Peter follows from a distance, only to publicly deny Jesus three times with loud cursing. All 12 of his men either betrayed him, abandoned him, or denied him. Jesus' first act upon rising from the dead is to seek them out. It's amazing. Priority number one is to seek out his men and to restore them. Imagine what it's like to be them. For three years they followed Jesus, thought he was the great king, saw him died, felt their hopes utterly crushed. Because in Mark, they don't understand. They abandoned him. They denied him. And imagine the guilt. Imagine the guilt. Uh, one of their men who betrayed him, Judas was so guilt-ridden he went and hung himself. And Jesus, who told his men in chapter 10 of this gospel, I'm going to die to be a ransom. I'm going to give my life for the life of others. I will bear the penalty in myself on the cross For your sin, your guilt. I will bear the punishment, the wrath of God. His just judgment for you that you might have life. I'm giving my life for your life. That's what a ransom is. He's already done that on the cross. So his first act when he rises from the dead is not to go and browbeat his men, to guilt manipulate his men, to find them and say, where were you guys? He pursues them because he died for them. He pursues them because he loves them. He pursues them to restore them. I want to put the two things together. Some of you that have grown up in the church, you got a little bit of that last part. Jesus died for your sins to make you right with Him. And that's good. It can also be very individualistic and just about you. And you just need to hear that you're not the center of the universe. It's not all about you. Jesus did die to make you right with God. But your story is part of a big story. The story that God is restoring all things. And that needs to be your story too. It's a global story. It's a cosmic story. It's not just about you. It's about everything. C.S. Lewis wrote, This grand miracle of the resurrection is the missing chapter of the novel. The chapter on which the whole plot turns. That's why I believe God and Jesus Christ has dived down into the bottom of creation. And he really did. Jesus didn't come. If he is who he says he is, the Son of God, he didn't come and live in a glass castle, an ivory tower. He took flesh, lived in a poor, ramshackle town that no one knows about, Nazareth. It's like 60 people live there, best we know. He worked a hard life. 
He surrounded himself with men that didn't understand him. He surrounded himself with people of suffering. He didn't run from it. He sought to heal them. He walked justly and rightly and perfectly with them. Ultimately, he was willing to die for the good of others, to bear their sins. Jesus dove into the deepest parts of human misery and came out the other side. He has dived down into the bottom of creation and has come up bringing the whole redeemed nature on his shoulder. Which, if you're a Christian, that means you. He dove through death and came back to life bearing you with him. Christ is risen and so so shall we rise. For a few moments, St. Peter walked on the water. The day will come when there will be a remade universe, infinitely obedient to the will of glorified and obedient men and women. When we can do all things, when we shall be what we're supposed to be. That's the grand story. Scripture starts out that way. We live in right relationship with each other and the world. What do we know now? We know frustration and we know fear. The story of Scripture is God's going to restore all those things and us to the way it's supposed to be. Now let's get back to us. We so easily get lost in our own stories. Your stories aren't necessarily bad, although all of our stories have brokenness and sadness and suffering and lack of perspective. What's your story right now? What's the narrative? If you could sit down and just write out the... What's, if you could summarize your story for the last week or semester, what is it, honestly? I know what you do for a living, your students. You have to study. Leave all that stuff out. I'll write it in there. But how much of your story is plagued by fear? And I know right now you have free reason to fear, reason to be anxious. How much of your story is anxiety? How much of your story is grief, loss, sadness, guilt, shame? I am not denying the reality of those parts of your stories. Christianity doesn't do that. It's real. Jesus came and bore with those things and seeks to reverse them. But is that all? Can you get out of that story? Do you have a broader perspective Can you see more than that? Can you see that this story of what Jesus is doing in restoring everything is a better story? It's a bigger story? That it's good news? I'm not saying deny your story. It is your story. But I am saying this good news of restoration should be front page news in your head if you're a Christian every single day. Front page news. We live in a broken world. That stuff doesn't go on the back page. But you need to be able to filter your reality as you live it every day through the lens of this great story that Jesus loved you and pursued you to make you right and He's going to make everything right. You need to be able to think about your life, your circumstances, your fear, even this current madness in light of the grand story of what God's doing. If you're not a Christian, I know it's a hard thing to ask you to do. Uh, Maybe you don't have a grand story. Maybe you do. What is it? Think about it. Lastly, it's a grand story, and you have a part to play in it. Because we have a part to play in the story, and it's a really important part, uh, we're either going to play it poorly or well, depending on how well we know this story. 
So what's our part? This will be really quick. God invites us to participate. He really does. We all have a part in the story as well. You sort of get a clue to this in the verses 7 and 8. The fact that Jesus sends women to restore his disciples tells me pretty much all I need to know about this. One, he's interested in restoring his disciples. They're traitors. They're betrayers. They're deniers. They're abandoners. He wants to restore them. Why? He loves them. And he intends to use them. Right now, they're scared to death. Six weeks from now, they'll be in Jerusalem preaching the good news of the gospel. The city will be turned upside down. The church will explode. It's amazing. It's also significant who tells the men this. It's women. Some of you don't get too riled up, ladies. You've got to put yourself in the first century Middle East. In the first century, no one wanted to be a woman. Jewish scholars were, were known to thank God that they weren't women. And in both uh, the Roman world and I think the Jewish world as well, the witness of a woman was not permissible. So, if two women saw something, reported on it, it wasn't legally uh, justifiable as, as true testimony and witness. So this is significant. Jesus entrusts the most important news in history to a couple of women and says, go tell Go tell. They were the first witnesses of the gospel. Some of you might be feeling very dignified about this. Um, You've got to put yourself there. And, and frankly, this is so unbelievable in the first century context. That this is the kind of thing that if you were making up the story, if Mark decided to fabricate Christianity and make it up, you would not have put this in there. Because first century people would have said, oh, it's just a bunch of women. Can't trust them. Well, why is it in there? Because it's true. Because God entrusted them with this very important message. He entrusts everybody. If you're a Christian, you have a part in this story as an ambassador. To go tell, verse 7, go tell them I'm going ahead of them. Their job is to share the good news. It's also awesome news. I don't know if you noticed this when I read it. This is the last thing. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment. It seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Actually, the original language is really funny. I only bring up original language, it's really funny. It actually reads, they said nothing to no one. Um, because they were scared. Because they were afraid. The gravity of what they were hearing scared them to death. A couple things to take out of this. Does Jesus rising from the dead have that kind of gravity? Does it shock you? Does it awe you? It's, it's got to do something. I know it's really easy for us to get used to ideas and not a big deal. They were rightly awed. Do you got any of that? It's, it, this is the most significant thing or the most significant hoax and lie. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. I don't know how you can be gray about this. It's either the most significant act in history on which you should hinge your faith in life or the most significant, pernicious lie. Did I put that black and white enough for you? This cannot be boring. I'm sorry. And they were afraid. Eventually they had to go tell, and they did. But they should... You have some comfort here, right? It's hard to tell people. 
It's hard to share the good news. If you're a Christian, you have a hard time sharing the good news. And if you not have a hard time sharing the good news, that Jesus, the Son of God, that came on a mission to restore all things, to make things new, He rose from the dead. And you say, if I tell people that message, they'll think I'm crazy. You have a choice. You really do have a choice here. The women had a choice. We have a choice. You can go on living in your story, or you can live this one. You can embrace the good news of this story, that Jesus has come to restore people like you, and woven you into this grand narrative of restoration where he's renewing everything, and you not only get to enjoy it, but be a part of it. What's it going to be for you? Mark ends abruptly, I think. So you would be unnerved with a question. Who's going to tell? Who's going to follow? Are you? All right, let's pray together.